Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to head over to MyPeaceCorpsStory.com and connect with me. And also connect with me on Instagram at My Peace Corps Story and on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story. And if you have not done so, be sure to leave a five-star review for the show over on Apple Podcast. Listeners, guess what? The My Peace Corps Story podcast is now one year old. And I have you all to thank for helping me make it to one year. Thank you for those who have been listening since the very beginning. Thank you for those who are just tuning in. Uh, this episode is a, a year in review. Me looking back at the, the interviews that I've had, uh, mainly focusing on those interviews in the first six months. Some of my favorite stories that I've heard from current and fellow volunteers uh, that that I just I really enjoyed, and this was very difficult to pick uh, favorite stories and episodes because every single interview had something special about it. It had a great uh, point or revelation and tidbit that, that you could take away from it. So I definitely encourage you to listen to each and every one. Well, without further ado, let's start off the year in review. This is this is this is this is my my Peace Corps Peace Corps my Peace Corps my Peace Corps story story story. When I first started the the development of this podcast, I set up an Instagram account, and that's how I started building my, my audience and getting myself out there. And through that Instagram account, uh, in the in the very beginning, if you, you clicked on the link that was in the profile, it sent you to a landing page where you could either uh, sign up to, to follow the project as I developed it, or if you were a return Peace Corps volunteer or current volunteer, you could select to share your story. I was so surprised by how many people, uh, knowing really nothing of the project, have me having produced not a single episode, signed up to to share their story, um, and then you know, I, I I had to I had to start interviewing people, uh, and I had never really interviewed people, uh, and I think you can still t- tell that at times I'm not always the most eloquent individual. Uh, but I, but I try. Uh, thankfully, uh, the people that I'm interviewing, uh, they they have such amazing stories and experiences that I don't have to do that much work. Uh, just listen, be there, be attentive. Joan Barker, who is on episode two, was the the first person that I interviewed. She served in Niger from 2005 to 2007. And from that very first time interviewing someone and, and hearing her stories, I knew that this project was going to be a blast, a ton of fun, an opportunity for me to remember and relive some of my experiences, but also hear some amazing stories. Here is uh, one of Joan's stories from episode two of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. So another thing about Niger, which you probably learned in, in Burkina, was uh, dogs, like street dogs there. Like every dog is a street dog and nobody mm-hmm. really owns dogs as pets. And also from a religious point of view, it's not exactly halal to have a dog like living with you or or even be nice to dogs. Um, and I, I had a friend who, a Peace Corps friend, who knew that I wanted to kind of adopt a street dog. And so she got me this puppy from her village that they were trying to exterminate some of the dogs from that village. So in a little aside, um, 
they would do these like campaigns where they would like round up dogs and like have to like kill them because they didn't have like any dog population control you know like we like dogs aren't getting spayed and neutered over there yeah so um she took this little puppy that was like being rounded up by her villagers and uh she brought it to to me and was like hey i saved this dog for you like do you want it i was like sure but without any sort of hesitation like took on adopting this dog like no like full well knowing like oh god this is going to be the people around me that I live with are not going to be on board with this. Like the people I live next door to in my village are like, why do you have this, this little beast? <laughs> and like, what are you doing? Like with a dog in your house? That's so gross. Like, what are you doing? Um, so it was about a week after I got this dog, I would carry him around in my backpack and kind of zip him up. So people couldn't see him when I was out and about. Cause it just brought too much like unwanted attention. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I was walking across the village to go visit a friend of mine to have some tea. And on the way to her house, um, I was approaching a, like a group of people that were like hanging out under a neem tree, just drinking some tea and shooting the breeze. And they were like waving to me. And I was walking up to them to just say like a normal hello. And I see their faces like looking at me, like they're, they're all smiling. And all of a sudden like the smiles just dis their faces and they all this look of horror. I gotta look behind me because I'm like, they're looking at something behind me. And I, I couldn't even turn around. I just felt this like searing pain in the back of my leg. And before I knew it, like I just heard this like growling. I was like, Oh, it's, it's a dog. And I, I turned around, there's this huge dog just like chewing out this piece of my leg. And I was like, Oh, like what the hell is happening? And, uh, so all of a sudden, like the, the guys that were drinking tea had, that had been sitting there in front of me, they get up and they start throwing stones at this dog. I finally let's go of my leg and he runs away. And, and I realized like my little puppy had been like poking his head out of my backpack. So I don't know if that like got the attention of this big vicious dog, but anyways, he had bit me and I, it hurt like hell. And, um, but you know, as I'm like looking down at like my leg is like bleeding and these people are looking at me like, Oh my God, what just happened? And like I start like crying, which is totally not crying is like not a thing that you do in public over there. And it's like, I don't know in Burkina if it was similar, but um, I'm sitting here like in this excruciating amount of pain. My leg is bleeding. I'm trying to fight back like tears because I'm so embarrassed that I'm crying in front of these people and, and they don't know what to do either. So I just start like limping, hobbling away back to my mud hut, which is probably about like a half mile away. And um, like with this trail of blood, my trying to keep my dog in my backpack, which is another added element of like people being like, what the hell is going on? Like people are seeing me like hobble, like bloody and like looking at me like what? And she's got this dog hanging off her back. <laughs> like it was just the weirdest thing. So um, I get back to my my house, my hut. And I'm like, well, what the hell do I do? I'm bleeding. Like, am I going to bleed out? Does, did this dog hit an artery? Like there was a lot of blood and I just was like freaking out. And um. And people are coming up to me at this point. They've heard about like, oh, you know, Hadiza, which was my given name over there was Hadiza, which is the is a Muslim name. And all of the Peace Corps volunteers that were in Niger, um, you take on a local name when you're there for cultural and safety reasons so people can easily identify you. So people are coming up and they're like, Hadiza, Hadiza, we, we heard you got bit by the dog. Like, what's going on? And and my house at this point was like pretty good, but it wasn't like fluent. And, and I'm also like in this like traumatic moment. So like, I'm not thinking like in house, I'm thinking in English, like, you know, all these swears are coming out of my mouth. <laughs> like, I'm just like, okay, I have to figure out how to stop this bleeding. Peace Corps had given us like a first aid kit. So I'm like rummaging through my first aid kit. Like, what can I put on this wound? Is it going to stop the bleeding? Oh no. Like I need to get out of the village. I need to go to the regional capital and get some help. But that's like a five hour like ordeal. Mm -hmm. So like, am I, am I going to die out here? Am I going to bleed to death? And like, I, I just, I'm so, I'm so panicked. And meanwhile, my neighbors are trying to talk to me in Hausa and I can't like, it's just, it's just so hard. Like this broken communication. I was so, I, I just looked in my journal. I'd forgotten about this. I was crying because it hurt so bad and I was so scared. And so I just kept like my door closed and wasn't letting anybody in because I was so, I was more embarrassed about the crying and how I was handling it than like anything else like I should have been thinking I need to get myself to the local hospital but all I was thinking was to do that I have to go in front of all these people and I'm crying so I have to wait till I'm done crying <laughs> which is so ridiculous but um so eventually I get to the point where I've like cleaned up some of the blood and like it seems like it's kind of slowing down and and I'm trying to explain to people through the window of my house like which is just a screen like I'm gonna go to Coney, which is Coney is the local city where we have a Peace Corps office. 
I'm trying to explain to these people, like, I need to leave. I need to go to Coney. And they're just telling me, oh, you can't go there. They're going to think something's, if you go and worry other people, like, don't make them worry about you. Like, we can take care of you here. And I'm thinking, like, there's nothing out here. Like, in our village, there's no clinic. There's no hospital. There's, like, a bush doctor. Like, are they going to take me to the bush doctor? So they, they're calling, like, the bush doctor. Like, you got to come look at this girl. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, I've got to go get some, like, antibiotics. And they don't know what that means. So it's just all of this like culture, like clashing at once, like trying to figure out the language, trying to explain to them in the way that's not going to hurt their feelings. Like, no, thanks. Like the Bush doctor, he doesn't need to come here. Please don't call him. Like, I just need to like, you know, get myself to, to the, like the, the American quote unquote American people doctor. <laughs> and so I don't know, finally they're like, all right, well, if you're going to leave, um, we have to send you out of the village with somebody that can help you like walk to the road. I was like, cool. And they're like, yeah, actually better yet we'll get the chief to walk you out because the chief lived like right next door. Like chief isn't busy right now. He's not out in his fields. Like he'll walk, he says he'll walk you out and he has a donkey. And I'm like, phew, like I'll be able to like ride a donkey out of town. Like, this is great. You know? Cause again, it's like a four and a half mile walk and it, this is like high noon right now. It's like 110 degrees outside. So the chief comes over with the donkey and I'm getting ready to like get on this donkey. And then he hops up on the donkey and starts riding away. And he's like, all right, let's go. And like, this is the point of the story where it turns from like horrible to like hilarious because I'm watching this guy like ride away from me in the donkey and it just hits me like he's he's the chief of the village. Like there's no way he's going to walk behind a woman, number one, and behind his own donkey, number two. Like he's on the donkey, like he's leading the charge. But here I am like with a like this bloody leg and this bloody skirt and I'm limping again with the dog in the backpack because I can't leave this dog out here. I, if I go to the to the city, it's going to be like a two week thing where I don't come back for a couple weeks because, you know, it's just it's a trek in, it's a trek out. You got to, you know, get your medications and whatever. So I'm like, I can't leave this dog. So here I am like limping with the dog out of my backpack again, like bloody leg, <laughs> just like tears streaming down my face people like laughing and here's this guy walking in front of me with a donkey. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. This is a ridiculous road show. But so we head out and we, uh, you know, we're, we, we got all the way out there. It was like a, uh, probably like an hour and a half, good hour and a half, two hour walk because we had to go so slowly because I couldn't really walk. Like my right leg was pretty much like out of commission. I was just like holding it. Like every step I took, I had to like grab my leg and kind of like pull it forward. But a few things like happened along the way that just like at least provided some comic relief. Like, walking behind this donkey at several points like the donkey just when donkeys go to the bathroom like when they take a shit they don't stop they just do it and they keep walking so a couple times like I got pooped on <laughs> and I'm like I wouldn't have remembered that detail had I not put it in the journal but like I just remember like looking down and being like I, there's blood there's poop and I, I'm just trying to like <laughs> get through it and then at one point when we're like, I could see the main road from where we were. It was probably still like a half mile out. Um, I go to take a step and my left foot, the good foot, the sandal popped. Like it, we were flip flops over there. You're walking around in flip flops, right? And this flip flop had just been like worn clean through and just like popped apart. And I was like, you've got to be effing kidding me. Like I'm covered in blood and shit. And now the sandal has like popped apart and I, will I have to walk barefoot for the rest of the way? So the chief hops off the donkey and, with his machete in hand, like cuts off a piece of his fabric from like some rag that he had. And like we fasten, it takes us like a good 10 minutes. We fasten away to get the flip flop back together. And so I keep like, we hobble on and like we get to the road. And now the challenge is, um, I have to wait for a car because on the road, like a car might pass every like 20 or 30 minutes. And you just basically have to sit there and hitchhike. So, which I was used to doing, but just not in that condition. So the, the chief had to get back to the village because at this point he's worried about being able to make it back before sunset. So like he leaves me, like we greet each other goodbye and he like heads back off into like the fields and I'm just sitting there on the side of the road with like a rag on my foot and my other leg is like bloody and like still covered in like donkey poop. And like my dog at this point is like whining. He has no idea what's going on. And I'm like, who's going to pick me up on the side of the road looking like this? Like normally it's hard enough to get a ride now I've got a dog and a lot of people won't pick you up if you have a dog or a cat or any animal like with you. And I'm like, what if I can't get a ride? What if I'm just stuck out on the side of the road with this bloody leg like all night? Like, is this how I die? Is this how they find my body? What are my parents going to think? You know, like those things just start going through your head and you're like, I'm out in the middle of nowhere and I'm helpless and I have no way to like remedy the situation. But 
Um, I don't think I had to wait too long. A guy came by with his car and I think he just saw this like scared, like teary eyed, like foreigner. And it was just a guy alone in his car, which was very unusual. Usually you see the bush taxis going back and forth. Um, but it was just this guy in like a really nice car. I think he was driving like a, you know, Mercedes Benz. And it's like, I don't know who this guy is, but somehow like in my broken house, I was able to communicate, like I've got hurt, like I got bit and I need to go to the city. And the guy gave me a ride and like, let me bring my dog in his car. And I was just like, cause I, at first I thought he's going to try to tie the dog on top. You know, cause a lot of people tie things on top of cars. He was like, no, you can bring your, your, your dog in the car. And and he didn't even charge me any money. Like when we got to the city, I like, think he just felt so bad for me. I was in such a like state. Um, and then I had to go from that local city um, where we did have a Peace Corps like outpost, but they couldn't take care of me out there. So I had to then take uh, that night. I took an overnight bus ride, which was like seven or eight hours capital um, where we had the Peace Corps medical officer. And he was able to like take care of me and give me some rabies boosters and bleach out my wound. But um yeah, like I won't get into all the details of that. I mean, that still that was a whole nother like hilarious chain of events, like just getting to the capital city. But I think getting bit by the dog and then like just walking out of the village behind this dude on a donkey with like a bleeding leg was it was just a lesson in culture and like letting go of <laughs> like American expectations. It's like this is happening and you just kinda have to deal with it in the moment. And um and I I, I was terrified, but at least those like funny things that happened along the way out or like, I remember laughing. I remember just looking up at the sky and being like, I guess this is just like how this is going to shake down and I'm not going to die and it's going to be okay. And like, it might be humiliating, but I'm okay. <laughs> and, um, and I was able to like in the moment communicate my needs to people, which is huge when you're like in a foreign land or like nobody's speaking English and you're just like, I'm at the mercy of these people and what my language can allow me to do in that moment like what can like being able to tell them you know like I need to go and you need to help me get to where I need to get to and I, like because they did not want me to leave the village they I think you know they they felt like they're responsible for me and keeping me like alive and well and if somebody finds out that I'd gotten bit by a dog like I think they feared some kind of like retribution like what is is the Peace Corps just from the village and then there goes like there goes the honeypot so to speak or you know like are they gonna let me go get treated so that I can come back here and continue to live there. So that was like a weird, just a weird experience, but um, there was some comedy in it. <laughs> comedy indeed. Uh, it, it's so interesting to, to see, you know, as we reflect back on our service and, and the highs and the lows, um, you know, sometimes we, we tend to look through our service in rose color glasses, uh, that we reflect uh, more fondly or are able to find the the humor in those experiences that, you know, sometimes uh, while we're experiencing them are anything but humorous. Yet at, at times uh, there are real hardships, things that happen in our service as volunteers that, that stick with us, that really shake us. Uh, and that's what this next short little um, soundbite is uh, from episode 14 with Jennifer uh, Bangura. She served in Mali uh, in 2000, from 2008 to 2012. It's actually where she, she met her husband. And later we talk about that uh, in the episode. But this little brief story, uh, I, I just really remembered it, uh, how, how tragic it was. And I, I suggest that you guys listen to the interview uh, with with Jennifer. She invited me into her house. I got to sit down uh, and just share uh, an afternoon with her, talking about her Peace Corps service, what she experienced, and what she learned. And here's a little taste of my conversation with Jennifer. At the end of my second year, my host mom was pregnant with her fifth child and um, she had asked the volunteer before uh, me to, she gave the volunteer before me the honor of naming um, her fourth child. And so that volunteer named that. And then she gave me the honor of naming this fifth child. And so I, I gave the name of, um, my grand, my paternal grandfather, 
and then they added another name and then of course their their family name and how how exciting and what an incredible honor to be asked to name the child of somebody and uh, I came home I started my third year uh, with Peace Corps and you get that one month break in between so I came home and celebrated Christmas here in the United States and I went back and I called my host mom and she um, said that her baby had passed away that the baby that I had named of course, that she had delivered. And just to hear about what that experience was like of taking your child to whatever medical provider she went to in San. I, I was at, in Bamako at the time when we spoke, and I didn't have children at the time. Uh, imagining how frightening that would be for somebody to to tell you at the time it was that her child was was dying and, and that it would be okay. Um, you just take these medicines. The baby's going to be fine. Um, I had a friend that was living in San at the time that I called that asked him to go to the doctor with her because um, I felt like something was being lost in translation since uh, she didn't speak French and I was concerned that the doctor was... Um, maybe only speaking to her in French or not really explaining the whole situation because he thought maybe she wouldn't understand this woman from a village. And I think that was um, some of what was happening. But that that's, was the hardest um, I, that I can remember right now. Part of my um, Peace Corps experience was experiencing what my host mom experienced from what she you know explained to me and seeing how you don't have a choice when things like that happen I mean you don't have a choice anywhere you have to move on pick up and move on you have other children you have other responsibilities you have things you need to do and I've seen now women around me here in the U.S. experience really terrible losses as well related to their children and, and otherwise and that resiliency I think that you, um, of course, hope to gain as a volunteer, but that you see around the people that you are living and working with. Um, that's probably the biggest lesson that came out of the Peace Corps for me. The next story that I'd like to share with you all comes from Taylor Fiella, who served in Fiji from 2015 to 2017. I tend to ask, or usually always ask, uh, for a favorite memory of someone's Peace Corps service and a not-so-favorite memory, something that they struggled with. Uh, This next clip is Taylor's favorite memory of getting a tattoo uh, with her host mother. Uh, I really enjoyed Taylor's interview, as as I do with all of them, and just uh, hearing about her experience uh, the highs, the lows, everything that happened. It was, an, it was a crazy story. Uh, some other stuff that she gets into. We'll definitely be sure to to check it out. She, uh, At the end of the clip, you'll hear that she alludes to uh, the fact that she had to leave rather abruptly. And that story, uh, she tells it, is absolutely crazy. Uh, but the, the way she talks about it is so refreshing. I think you guys uh, should definitely check out her interview on episode 17 if you haven't. So here is Taylor's story. I got this tattoo. It, it says La Loma. And I was, I, I mean, we were. I was approaching leaving. I was approaching my departure date. And this woman had done so much for me throughout my two years there. Uh, she made me feel like family. She was actually only 30 years old and I'm 20. I was 22 to 24 during my service. So she was really like my best friend, but she was voted my Nana. They, that couple was voted my Nana and Tata through the whole village. So, you know, that they had like a good reputation. Um, so basically um, my, I was like thinking, you know, I don't know what to get this woman who has cared for me for two years. I felt like nothing I could get. Like I had, there was no item I could ever have given her that would have lasted a lifetime that would mean, uh, so like that would symbolize as much as she meant to me. I just couldn't, I couldn't come up with something. So I was just sitting there one day 
And I said, Nana, do you want to get matching tattoos? And she was like, yes, Tele, I would love to get matching tattoos. Tele was my Fijian name. And I was like, okay, this is going to be great. We're go- we should get the word Laloma. Laloma means sending love. So whenever you call someone, you would always say like, oh, Laloma, Tele, like I miss you. We're sending you love. And so I was like, Nana, we should get Laloma so that every single time I look at it while I'm in America and you look at it when you're in Fiji, you, you can know that I'm always always sending you love and I will know that you're always sending me love and she was like that's such a good idea I'm so I'm so I, I want to do that for sure and I was like perfect so this is like the ultimate gift it's, it'll definitely last a lifetime and so um, I tell the story a lot and I say you know in America you just get into a car you go to the new the nearest tattoo parlor and you guys look at like some of the artist designs you decide, you get the tattoo, you pay, you leave. <clears throat> Simple enough. Well, not in Fiji. In Fiji, <laughs> I took, me and my nana, it was so funny. We took a truck from our village to the school I taught at. Then we took another truck to a um, another another village, a different village that was two miles away from the other village where the tattoo artist was. So then, so then we walked two miles, we we walked about one and three quarters of a mile until somebody picked us up, like who was a police officer. Um, Well, was I a police officer? What was this person? Oh, he was just working with the district officer. So we knew him, although that's still illegal. You're not supposed to get into any transportation by your Peace Corps volunteer. Uh, That's not, that's not like uh, public, but anyway. Uh, we get into his car. We get to the the person's house who was doing the tattoo. Now, this person, I had met him. His Pete was his name. He actually didn't have any thumbs or index fingers. And he didn't have any thumbs or index fingers because when he was living in the city about seven years prior, he had done bad business with a tattoo parlor. And they, like, beat his thumbs and his index fingers off. But I still heard that he did the best tattoos out there. So I really wanted to get a tattoo from him. So we get to his house and he's living in like, a, it's kind of like almost a tree house. I, it was the coolest Virginian house I've ever seen next to mine. Mine was really cool. But um, uh, he was living in like a very cool open, kind of like a tree house. And we get there and he's like, oh, well, the power is not on. So we're going to have to use the solar panel. To, to make sure that we that the uh, the gun works. So he pulled out his solar power th- solar panel. Thank God there was sun the day before and the day of because or else we weren't getting the tattoos after walking driving and walking about I don't know altogether probably seven miles. And um, we got the tattoos on his solar panel and I just feel like my tattoo is so organic, you know. And, um, so yeah, I mean I just it was such a great experience. To my nana was freaking out because she hadn't gotten a tattoo. They usually when they're younger in Fiji, a lot of times they'll do poke and sticks of their uh, secondary school uh, initials. So my Nana had a few tattoos that were poke and stick, but you know, they weren't the the best done. (laughs) So I really wanted to give her something that looked like really nice and stuff. So she got hers right above, like um, right in the middle of her arm around here. And I got mine on my right uh forearm so yeah it was it was a really good experience that was awesome I'm glad that I'm so happy I got to do that with her because I had left abruptly which I guess we'll get into later but and um so I'm so happy that I did that before I have I had left suddenly yeah as I like to say every volunteer has a story what's yours and it is absolutely true every volunteer has an amazing story, amazing stories, highs, lows, ups, downs, the crazy things we experience, the commonalities, the uniqueness of each of our services. But while every volunteer has a story, some volunteers are really good at telling their own stories. Greg Emerson is one of those volunteers. Uh, It helps that he studied journalism and is a journalist, and storytelling is his profession, uh, but I just 
could have talked to, to Greg uh, for the whole evening when he came over to my house when he was visiting D.C., just really had an enjoyable time with him. Greg served in Morocco uh, starting in 2003, was evacuated, then uh, continued on to serve in Peru from 2003 to 2005. Uh, you guys should uh, check out more of his stories on his episode, uh, episode 23. But here is a story that he told that was just told so well and ahead of a lot of good things to remember that as as much as we want to be part of our community and part of that culture and everything, that we're kind of always going to be an outsider. Something that I think is important to, to remember and accept, and it's okay. Here is Greg's story. As much as I wanted to be part of the community and really integrate myself, there's it was very naive of me to think that People could see me as anything other than this, you know, big white walking pile of money. And, you know, ironically, some of the some of the moments where I made the, you know, that really pushed my relationships forward were the times when I was vulnerable and the times when I made the wrong decision, maybe. And uh, I was very concerned about, you know, I wanted to make sure people understood that I was one of them and I was on their side. And... There was one incident, so we were, uh, my town was called Coyon, and it was actually a collection of four different small villages spread across a few hundred vertical meters of mountainside, and the town I, the part I lived in was about 230 people, but um, we were a series of four towns at the end of this little valley, sort of at a, roughly a cul-de-sac. But if you continued up the valley, and there was a little walking trail, and you could hike, and you'd go quite far in, uh, there was a series of mountains, uh, snow-capped peaks at the end of this little valley that tourists would come to climb because I was in it. It was a mountain climbing and adventure tourism kind of area. And so we would have tourists coming through sometimes. People would come up in a taxi or a truck uh, if, it was not, if the road was not washed out. They'd get dropped off in the main plaza in my town and then they would start walking to go up to the mountain. And that means uh, my town saw Westerners come through sometimes, and they had donkeys, and sometimes they would act as porters, and it was an important source of revenue uh, during the climbing season for them. And so I wanted to, I worked a lot with those guys to organize them. And, you know, previously it had sort of been a free-for-all, right? Like during every morning during climbing season, whoever got to the plaza first with their donkeys would be the one who would take the take the first climbers up, and they would just take turns. So, you know, it was important to me to sort of work with them to to formalize their operation a little bit more and have a rotation of who's got donkeys and how many, and let's put a schedule together so everyone has an equal chance at you know uh, accessing this this way of life. So there was. One incident, I guess, about a year in, into my service where uh, one day this guy came over and knocked on my on my door and was like, hey, he was like, Don Yiku, I, my name is Greg, right? So Gregorio in Spanish, but in Quechua, my village spoke Quechua. They had a, a Quechua version of the name Gregorio randomly. Uh, so a lot of volunteers, I think, adopt a local name just that sounds similar or that, but there was a Quechua version of my name, which was Yiku, spelled L-L-I-C-U. So... They would address me as Don Yiku. This guy comes to me, Don Yiku. Uh, I got this this check. You know, I was paid by these travelers, but the bank won't cash it. And what, you know, can you help me? Because I'm a white guy. So, of course, the bank will pay me. They won't pay him. But since I'm a white guy, I can get them to pay me. So it turns out these were traveler's checks. And the second box was not signed. And that is the first indication that the traveler in question did not intend to pay those traveler's checks to, to the person. But I had seen this guy, you know, take the people up and, uh, and we hadn't really ever dealt with this particular issue before. So I, you know, my inclination was like, you know, I had seen evidence of city folk kind of not going out of their way to help these people who were coming down from the villages into the city. And so I was like, yeah, maybe I can help you out. So I'll go to the bank and I'll, and I'll, you know, see if they'll let me just talk them into paying you. And when I got to the bank, you know, I was like, well, I work with these guys up in the village. I have, you know, we have a lot of uh, guides who work as sort of porters and guides. And, 
you know, the guy, the traveler and I, I lied to the bank because I was, you know, feeling my allegiance to, to this, this guy in town who I had a good relationship with. So, you know, I, I was like, the, we didn't have a pen handy and so the guy couldn't sign it, but you know, uh, can you help us out? It's like, no, I'm sorry. I can't do that. And I was like, well, maybe, uh, all right, well maybe he's still in town and I can find the guy. So it was a couple of days after the, the trip happened. And, you know, I wasn't going to go looking around the hotels in town for him. So I signed the check. Uh, I, maybe the statute of limitations has passed, but I forged the, the traveler's signature on that check because I, I wanted to believe my neighbor and wanted to do right by him, not by, you know, the bank and the, and the, the Western institutions that had, that had screwed this guy out of money. You know, I was giving him the benefit of the doubt. So I hadn't really, hadn't really been deceived by my community members. It was always, you know, nothing like that had happened before. So I go to the bank and uh, I was like, I was able to find the, the tourist and I ran into him in town and he was able to, and so I, you know, and, and of course, as should surprise nobody, a couple of weeks later, I got a call. Uh, and I had a cell phone. Uh, we had one phone in the village that didn't work, but I had a cell phone because it was 2003. This is the Bush Peace Corps. It was the first time. I think safety was a real big priority uh, around that time and really starting to look at. And I, there was a gold mine across the valley, you know, many miles away, but uh, a giant Canadian gold mine had installed a cell tower for their workers. So I had perfect reception in my village. I was up in village in the village one day and I got a call from the bank or from my counterpart agency from care. They were like, Hey, the bank is looking for you. So when next time you're in town, can you stop by? And next time I was in town, I, I stopped by. I was like, Oh yeah, I heard you guys were looking for me, you know, playing dumb. And, uh, one of the bank administrators came out and he was like, Hey, listen, you know, the traveler reported these travelers checks stolen. And so, you know, you owe us the money that we paid you for them. And, you know, I didn't ask a single question. I was like, okay, here's the money. And, you know, this was another indication of, of white privilege down there where instead of being thrown in fucking jail, I was just, you know, make them do right by them, give them the money they lost and we'll sweep it under the rug and everything will be fine. So after that, I went, you know, when I went back to the village, I was incensed. I, I felt violated, you know, even though I, I knew that I was doing something that was not not legal, not appropriate, not following the rules, but... I thought I was rectifying some bad luck that my neighbor uh, had had. And when I went back up, I confronted him. I was like, hey, listen, you know, the bank made me give him the money back because those are traveler's checks and, they, and the guy said they were stolen. And, you know, I know you told me that, that the guy just couldn't pay you or couldn't sign it or could, he gave these to you and you didn't have any idea what they were all about. But, uh, you know, he said they were stolen and did you steal these from him? Like I was, he just sort of looked down. He didn't say anything. And I was like, you stole them. And he sort of teared up and he was, he, he was like, oh, que, que vergüenza. Like I'm so embarrassed. And you know, really was quite upset. And he was one of the poorer, it was one of the poorer families in this already very poor village. And I really, you know, I, I was angry and I wanted to be angry at him, but, you know, in a way I was really, at that point, you know, I knew I could absorb the loss of money. And so I was really trying to put myself in his shoes and, you know, you know, is that it was genuine, I believe that it was genuine uh, regret, remorse, because what he didn't realize, you know, what I told him, I was like, you don't realize that, like, if I had been interacting with a different person at the bank, they might have been able to throw me in jail, kick me out of peace, or report me to Peace Corps, kick me out. I don't know. I was like, there's a lot of bad things that could happen. I don't think you recognize the consequences that this could have had for me. And he was super upset and he was crying and like his wife came out of the house and he was like, go back in and like, don't you know, leave us alone. And, you know, he didn't want to acknowledge it really. And so I was, you know, I was really trying to put myself in his shoes and understand like what made him do that. And, and 
I never really, you know, I never really understood. And he and I didn't really speak for the rest of uh, of my service there. And it was unfortunate. And, you know, I told a couple people in the town about it and they were, you know, shaking their heads and, oh, what a terrible thing for him to do. And that's so disrespectful to you. And But, you know, it wasn't, it was, it was a bit of a wake up call for my own naivete, right? I was like, I want to be a champion of the people and these are my people and I live here and I'm a villager just like them. And, and, you know, on my second day or my first day in town, one of the first things I lived with the president of the community and, and it just so happened that the time, the day I moved in, they were doing a census. And so like, so the next morning I went around with my host father to everyone's house and we were making sure to register everyone's name and their socials, their ID number and how many kids they had and just sort of getting the town's details to feed to, for the population. And we got back that evening, like he had been doing this for a week or two. And so, uh, in the first couple of days that I lived there, I went on the last rounds with him. And one day at the end of it, he, before, you know, he was like, I'm going to go turn this in tomorrow to the district capital, but I'm going to, you know, let's write you in. And so he made an entry in the census for me as a, as a resident of this village. This was like right off the bat. I really felt, I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm here for. I want to be part of this village. I want to live with you guys. I want to, and it was a bit idealistic and that was sort of my first wake up call of like, okay, I don't, you know, as much as I think I know these people and I think that we have honest and, and open relationships with each other and, and you know, that it's, I am an outsider and I can use that to my advantage and that is not necessarily a bad thing. And, you know, it really, it really helped me. I don't know, just be more, a little bit more critical about my interactions with people and my relationships with people. It certainly, you know, removed my naivete about, you know, I'm just like them. You know, I'm not just like them. And that's okay. And that's good. And I, and I, I should embrace that. And I should be aware of that. And I should, you know, it, it sort of kickstarted. This is so about halfway through my service. So it really made me realize like, wait, I am different. And, I am a rare opportunity for them to learn from and 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 I must say you know I I tried to ramp up quite a bit you know my my interaction with people and my even if it's just helping one little family I'm like I'm not one of them and I am going to leave I'm not going to live here forever I'm not a part of this community as much as I want to be and so I think that gave me a little bit of a more sophisticated understanding of my role there it was difficult uh, it was a little bit of a, of a, I lost some innocence there. I'd like to think that I was trying to do the right thing, but you know, when I, when I think about it now and, and bank fraud is not doing the right thing. So I learned a, I learned an important lesson. And lastly, for this year in review, or really first six months in review, since this is when all these stories come from, is a story from Elizabeth Alt. Elizabeth served in El Salvador from 2006 to 2008, and she had this story that was just so absurd and so crazy uh, that it, it had to make it into this year in review. She talks about the time that she was sued for $7 by a drunk ice cream salesman. This is um, my favorite story of all stories. It, it, I was sued for $7 by a drunk ice cream salesman in the village that I worked in. I, like I'd said before, I, I had a basketball camp and so we would be out playing basketball, like the hottest part of the day, like three to four or five o'clock in the afternoon. And I just taught them how to dribble. But to them, I was Michael Jordan because I'm 5'10 and their basketball nets are rather low. So I could kind of jump up and put the ball. It was, it was pretty like patting myself on the back. Amazing how good I was, but I was like a, a bench writer in high school at best. Um, and so I'd have basketball camp and it was a bunch of kids and we just dribble the balls and be silly and have fun and just be outside. And, um, there was an ice cream salesman that would go around with his little truck and, you know, have a little bell on it. And, uh, one day he was over. So the park, you know, was in the middle of the town and the church is on, the west side and on the east side is like a, a dispensary for alcohol. 
like a person's house. He gets beer and stuff imported to the town and he sells it. And he's over there and the ice cream man starts screaming cuss words in English. And of course all the kids know the cuss words in English. Um, and so they all, I mean, I just remember this moment where they all just kind of freeze and like, look at me, like, what is she going to do? And I just say, come on, let's just keep playing. Let's have fun. Let's not worry about him. And then he starts getting closer and closer to the park. And now I'm just worried about the kids. I'm just like, you guys just, I just said, just get off the court, just leave, just stay over here. Don't, don't touch him. Don't talk to him. And so the, he comes, he comes up to me and asks me if I want ice cream. Now in Spanish, you have the word invitar. So in most traditional senses, if I invite you to go get a coffee, that means I'm going to pay for your coffee. So he says, I invite you all to ice cream, which means I am giving you ice cream. You're not paying for it. And I just said, I was like, listen, we would like your ice cream, but we have no money to pay for it. And he says, I don't care. Have some ice cream. He's drunk, like 20 sheets to the wind drunk. So, of course, I say yes. <laughs> he doesn't react. These kids, like, take him for all of his money, I swear to God. They're, I mean, like, later I find out one of my, like, star little basketball players was up in a tree. He's got a tummy ache because he had, like, six or seven ice cream bars. Um, it was... <laughs> um, so... The kids get the ice cream. They run off. I'm collecting my things. He's like coming out. Like he's realizing that he is, was drunk and did something stupid. So he starts yelling at me in the middle of basketball court. Like, and this is like at the time of day where people are, you know, like going home or like taking a little morning afternoon walk before they start preparing dinner. And, um, so the town is like coming out, like everyone is out and taking sides. And, uh, so I'm just like, like just trying to like maintain cool and not be the, like the gringa that yells at the poor drunk man. Um, and so, you know, I, it just kind of like, just, I like you, you invited us to ice cream. What can I do? You invited us to ice cream. And my friend Giovanni, who, who lived in Canada, who, so he spoke English came by and he was like, what is going on? And I, I told him real quick in English, so the guy wouldn't understand, um, what happened? And so Giovanni pulls out five bucks from his wallet and says, gives it to the guys like here, leave her alone. And so, um, who I, the woman I found out later to be, uh, my husband's aunt, uh, Nina Terry came out and said, you know, she was like, just leave her alone. You're drunk. You were stupid. Like, yeah, she's an American and she probably shouldn't be here, but you were drunk. You were stupid. Leave her alone. So everyone's like, had been taking sides this whole time. So there are people who are like pro, like Team Elizabeth, and people who were repeating the, why is the American here? She's ruining everything kind of vibe. And so, um, you know, this people are starting to take sides and yell at each other about this thing. And the guy, the ice cream man had been paid off and the ice cream man's boss shows up in his truck big black truck pulls up to the side of the park to pick up his little cart and him take him back to the big city. And the, the boss is like, what is going on? And so I tell him and the boss is like, well, you're, you know, like tells the, I don't even remember the ice cream guy's name. Like that's a bad part of the story. Um, he's like, well, you're lucky. She, you know, is giving you any money at all. You know, if I were her, I wouldn't give you any money and I would be out without the money. So like the rest of the, so he leaves and like for a week, I get made fun of. Like people are like, oh, do you want ice cream, Elizabeth? But that means that you have to pay for your own ice cream. Like, you know, just teasing me. And there's a song about ice cream that was really popular at the time. People would play it and point at me and laugh. And I was like, I still speak Spanish. I still get the joke. It's not very funny. And um, that's fine. And then like a week later, the most gossipy woman in the whole town comes to my door with a summons to the court. And she comes and she's like, no, no, it's just fine. Like you just calm and we'll, the, and then you'll talk to the judge. And I'm like, I'm not stupid. I'm in another country and you're taking me to court. So I call the security officer, the secu you know, for the Peace Corps. And after she like stops laughing and like puts me on speaker and makes me repeat the story. She's like, yeah, 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 we'll be out there. Don't worry about it. But I mean, I just remember her like laughing as I'm telling her the story. Like, of course, of course, Elizabeth, of course you'd be the one who's gotten sued for $7. Well, actually, he's suing me for $30. We'll get to that. 
Um, so the day of the court date comes. And so <laughs> Clelia, the security officer, comes in a big white truck from, you know, it's Peace Corps on the side of it. Uh, and we walk over to the, the court room. That's a nice way of saying it. Uh, the judge comes out in Hawaiian shirt. Um, and khaki, like cargo pant, like shorts. Um, of course, <laughs> puts his rough bond over it. And he, um, was really, he said he's really excited about this case because it wasn't about chickens. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so you, and, uh, in El Salvador, you have a person of good faith that comes with you. It's kind of like arbitration. So you have a person of good faith for each side and you kind of like negotiate or like, you know, come to some agreement is what happened. And so, uh, he gets to go first because he brought in the case and he starts saying that over 30 kids attacked him in the park for ice cream and beat him up and stole all of his goods. And he, you know, <laughs> and so my jaw, like my jaw has hit the floor. I am reacting. I'm like, what? And so Clelia like elbows me. Like I can still remember like her elbow, like getting between my ribs and just being like, shut up, like just listen just be respectful. So I have to like pick my jaw off the floor and like sit on my hands and not look at anyone until he's done speaking. And so then I, you know, relate what I had told you earlier. You know, like we were playing basketball. He was drunk. He asked if we wanted ice cream. I said, no, we couldn't pay. He said, come take some anyways. And they did. So I kind of got to play the stupid gringa who's like, I didn't know that, that word meant what that meant. And, um, so that, you know, that the judge was like, now I don't, think it's a $30 worth of cake, but I think $7 would be a good amount to cover some of the costs. <laughs> so I had to, I had to pay. Peace Corps paid $7 to settle this case. Uh, yeah, that's my story. <laughs> well, guys, there you have it. Another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. Thank you for making this first year of the podcast an absolute blast. Now, as I've said, these are just a few of the amazing interviews that I've conducted over the past year. There were some that I really enjoyed that I didn't put in here uh, because they really needed to be a, a, a standalone interview. Uh, one, one that I mean really comes to mind, Megan Reith Miller, where she talks about her sexual assault. Uh, I couldn't I couldn't take a clip from from her interview and have it in here. It really needed the whole story around it to do it justice. Um, so make sure you you check out that one and listen to all the episodes. Uh, and also reach out to me and let me know what you want to hear in the next year. If you have show ideas, I said this on last week's episode and I got a few emails from people. Thank you. Uh, thank you for letting me know what you think, what you'd like to hear and some of your ideas. Um, while this is, you know, my podcast, uh, I'm the one producing it. I want to make it for you guys, for the listener, for the prospective volunteers, the current volunteers, return volunteers, and all those supportive of the Peace Corps. Until next time, remember, every volunteer has a story. What's yours? <laughs>